American soccer fans, welcome to episode 124 of the USA Soccer Cast. We are bringing you everything about the U.S. national teams, the players, the leagues, and everything else that impacts the game of soccer in these United States. I'm Donald Wine. Today we have a special interview for you. As I mentioned on the previous show, we are doing interviews with each of the candidates for U.S. Soccer Vice President. That election will take place at the Federation's annual general meeting that takes place in Dallas the weekend of February 8th. We begin with Nathan Goldberg, the former assistant general manager of New Jersey, New York, Gotham FC, who is one of the two remaining candidates for U.S. Soccer Vice President. In just a minute, we will air the interview I conducted with Nathan. He graciously took some time to come on this show to answer some questions about his candidacy and what he hopes to accomplish in this role. All the questions were prepared by me, including some that were received from some of our listeners. The candidates did not receive advanced copies of the questions and were airing the answers in their entirety. So with that, here it is, the interview with Nathan Goldberg. We are here with Nathan Goldberg, former assistant general manager at New Jersey, New York, Gotham FC. He is running for U.S. Soccer Vice President. Nathan, great to talk to you again, and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Donald. Thanks for having me. I really look forward to our conversation here. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to have questions in several categories that we hope to get to, but I want to start with the obvious one. Why you for U.S. Soccer Vice President? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot to that question, but what it boils down to is I think some of the biggest issues facing the Federation right now require someone who can help unite our membership and someone who can help make sure that every community is included in the growth of the game and someone who can make sure that we are seizing the future of soccer in America to match our ambitions. And along those three lines, I think I bring a really great history and track record of my time at the Federation and also the kind of success that I've had in the soccer world and outside of the soccer world and the fact that I am a independent voice and someone who does not have a conflict of interest, um, that's pretty rare in U.S. soccer elections. So, you know, thinking specifically about uniting our membership, that is something that comes up in every every election. And the way that I've approached thinking about this is, you know, soccer is a team sport. And we as a federation are stronger when we're pulling in the same direction, when our members are pulling in the same direction with the tournaments that are coming our way, the World Cups and the Olympics and Copa America, we really have an opportunity to launch a golden age of soccer in the United States. And every moment that we spend with internal squabbles among the federation members that is a moment that we are missing the opportunity to maximize the opportunity that the tournaments that are coming will bring. So what I've done in the past several months on the campaign trail is go around and talk to almost all our organizational members. We have 114 organizational members and listening to them tell me about, you know, what are the issues that are you are seeing in your corner of the soccer landscape? There are corners of the soccer landscape that I know really well, but there are more corners that I don't know that well because there's just so much soccer going on in this country. So people like 
the Delaware Youth Soccer Association. They know what's going on in Delaware better than me and better than anyone else. So sitting down and listening to them tell me what their issues are, which of those issues are specific to their state and which are shared issues that all the states are encountering helps me be both a conduit of information from our membership to the federation, but also someone who is connecting on a personal level with the people who are making soccer run in our country. And I think that person to person connection can be really, really powerful in aligning people behind Cindy's vision and JT's vision. You know, you mentioned the member organizations, as you know, and for those out there that don't, there's a, a, a ton of them, right? There's different states, youth, clubs, cerebral palsy, you know, coaches, athletes, referees. As you mentioned, they're not always on the same page. How do you work to bring them all together under the umbrella? And, and as you mentioned, pull forward in the same direction. Yeah. Well, one way to start is having the knowledge of what is going on across different councils. And so throughout my time in the soccer world, I've had the opportunity to work both at the Federation. So I've seen things from the inside out, from the, the center of the wheel across all our different membership councils and organizations. And since then, since working at the Federation, I've also had the chance to work directly in some of the councils and with some of the councils on their specific issues. So, I mean, I spent the last 18 months up until last Monday working at Gotham. And so I've, I've worked for a professional club and I've seen what things look like from the top level of the professional pyramid. Um, I have played soccer. I, I played youth soccer. I played U.S. youth soccer not too long ago. And also for the last year and a half, I've been advising the board of U.S. youth soccer pro bono on one of their strategic initiatives to get more direct feedback from their youth players. And I am an adult who plays soccer. So, you know, I'm not myself a member with a capital M of the U.S. Adult Soccer Association. But as someone who is an adult that plays soccer, I have an interest in making sure that we have a robust adult amateur soccer scene anywhere in the country. And I'm not myself an athlete. I wish I had been good enough to play for one of our national teams, but I do have personal relationships with a lot of the members of our athletes council. And so beyond that, you know, there's, there's the at-large member organizations, uh, which has the only member organization that is specifically focused on serving Hispanic communities is a collection of leagues that is part of the at-large council. So in all of the different membership councils, there are parts that I've touched and that I've worked with that give me a 360 view of what the Federation's issues are at a high level. And then, as I mentioned, even from my time at the Federation, I've been able to really build a lot of good personal relationships. And sometimes when we're thinking about these issues, yes, we have 114 member organizations. And, you know, I know that I said soccer, soccer is a team sport. It's also a people business. So these are not just organizations. They're organizations that are made up of people. And even when the organizational goals are slightly disparate, because in a lot of cases, members are competing with each other for player registrations and for field access. At the end of the day, at the people level, 
people want the same thing. We want more players to play soccer. We want soccer to be more accessible to more communities. We want more referees to be educated so that there is a referee available for every game that we want to play. Um, so connecting with people at that level, I think, helps blur the lines that have been drawn between one council and another council and brings people to the table with a mindset of, listen, we all want the same thing. We all want the Federation to move forward and to achieve all the goals that have been laid out in the strategic plan. Um, so coming to it from the perspective of I have experience across the different councils, I have experience at the Federation, and I have relationships across the different councils sets the stage for someone who can help build bridges and navigate some of the trickiness of cross-council issues. You you touched on a lot, and there's a couple of these that I want to come back to later, but I do want to talk about one of the bigger stories that's happened over the last month. U.S. Soccer, of course, announcing their move uh, to building a national training center just south of Atlanta and Georgia. It will have all the national teams, all 27 will be training there. Obviously, the headquarters will move there. What's the biggest benefit in your mind about having everything under one roof down there in Atlanta? Yeah, I think it, it's the same thing that we've already been talking about is that it's going to bring people together. And one of the things that I don't think enough people know is that, quote unquote, the national teams doesn't just refer to the senior women's and senior men's national teams. And we have... 27 and growing um, department of national teams that include all the youth teams on the boys and girls side, but also a lot of disability soccer teams that are very successful <laughs> in their disciplines um, and win us a lot of medals, a lot of gold medals. We also have the beach men's and women's and the futsal men's and newly women's um, teams. So once again, I think having a, 30,000 foot view of what is going on at the Federation, the ability for different parts of membership, different parts of the athletes to interact with each other makes us a stronger Federation. So having fields that are specifically designed and always there for our extended national team disciplines is going to create a level of connectivity among our athletes that is going to help everyone kind of push each other up to a higher level. And thinking about the governance, right? Let's expand beyond the walls of the United States of America and go into CONCACAF. We got a question in from Eric who who asked us, soccer unites us here and with the world around us. Where do you see U.S. soccer's role and responsibility within CONCACAF? Of course, we're already working with, you know, Canada and Mexico on the 2026 World Cup working with Mexico yep. to hopefully deliver the 2027 World Cup, and then you have the Olympics and so many different events that have been coming here. Where do you see where do you see U.S.'s role in within CONCACAF, within the region of bringing everybody together? Yeah, so I think there's a couple layers to this question. One is that the conduit for the connection between the U.S. Soccer Federation and the Confederation level and the FIFA level is really the president of the organization. Um, so that that's something that is not traditionally delegated to, to the vice president. Um, mm -hmm. I will say that I think just from a, from a personal standpoint, I believe that we really have a great opportunity over the next five years where the U.S. is going to become the epicenter of the soccer world for 
several years in a row um, to really position ourselves as global leaders in the soccer landscape and not just on the field. I mean, I think on the women's side, we've been the indisputable leader throughout the history of women's soccer. Um, on the men's side, I think we're getting better and better and, and starting to approach the same level of player development that will allow us to compete with the best in the world. But there's so much stuff off the field that the U.S. is best positioned to be a leader in globally. And that's where I would like us to see come out of the next five years as a like reference point for what soccer can do to make the world a better place. And if you think about things like the equal pay CBA, it took us a while to figure it out, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it, and it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but now where we are today is in a position of leadership. Like we were the first federation to figure it out and, and arrive at a contract that was equal for men and women. And to be able to use that to help other countries arrive at their own equal pay deals would actually create tremendous positive social impact across the world, especially in countries where soccer is religion and it's more important than politics. If we can leverage our experience into leadership that helps other federations do that, then they will be changing their societies for the better. And so that's the kind of big picture thinking that I would love to see from us, you know, from us in the U.S. about the kind of impact that we can have in the world through soccer by establishing, establishing ourselves as leaders in the global landscape. Yeah, so I, I want to move on to another portion of U.S. soccer governance. This is one that obviously is... I. I I hate to say it has gotten better uh, over the last couple of years, but it is something that is super important and something that still is, is a problem today. We've heard some of the stories from NWSL players over the past couple of years about some of the abuse that they've had to endure allegations of people in power turned a blind eye to some of the allegations that were put forth by players. And we've seen some of the initiatives that have come out of that with the participant safety hub and those initiatives that have been already started by us soccer. What, in your mind needs to continue to happen to ensure that this never happens again, ensure the safety of not just women players, but also youth soccer players in this country. Yeah. So you, you know, took the first part of, of my answer, which is the Sally Yates report that came out was very, very thorough, very, very detailed. And it still was not expansive enough to cover every part of the soccer landscape. So she referenced the fact that a lot of the behaviors that led to really horrible abuse and harassment were behaviors that were found and developed in the youth landscape, but that's not what she had been tasked with investigating. So she kind of left it as an exercise to the reader almost to tackle that issue um, so I think the work that Mana Shim as the chair of the Participant Safety Task Force and her team have been doing in both implementing the Sally Yates recommendations 
and delving deeper into can we stop some of this behavior at the root by changing the culture of youth soccer is really, really important work. Um, it goes hand in hand with some of the kind of nitty gritty policy of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport has not, in my opinion, achieved its stated goals of making sport participation safer for children. Maybe safer, yes, but to actually make it board safe, just categorically safe. Um, and so that requires collaboration with the federal government because the federal government decides how the Center for Safe Sport operates. Um, and, and that's something that when we think about, oh, I, I love soccer because I love the game and you know, kicking a ball around and watching people score goals, it's it's almost so detached from, you know, we need to do work on Capitol Hill to change some laws about how safety for children who are playing sports gets adjudicated. But that's kind of the task at hand. Like there's such a big unwieldy beast and we need to walk and chew gum at the same time to to make the sport safer for for young kids. The other piece that I'll say is I personally, you know, over the last um, year and a half at this point, have been conducting original academic research as a research fellow at the Harvard University Global Sports Initiative that is specifically focused on athlete well-being. And the departure point for that research was saying, okay, well, you know, I think <laughs> Sally Yates is going to do a good job of pinpointing the instances and the root causes of some of the misconduct and harassment and abuse that has happened over several years in the NWSL. I'm not going to do a better job of that than her. But once we establish an environment that is free of abuse and harassment, that's actually step zero. Like we actually have not taken a step forward. That should be the baseline. So when we achieve that, then where do we go? Like what comes next? How do you create environments where players can actually thrive and flourish as athletes and as people? So in interviewing you know, two dozen players who collectively had played in 19 different countries and you know several different leagues, everything from Women's Champions League and senior women's national teams to semi-pro third divisions, again, across different continents, asking players about what are the other factors that beyond misconduct influence and impact your experience and your well-being. So things like compensation, things like medical care, things like your relationship with the front office, things like how much support are you getting off the field in your personal and professional development and taking the findings of that and implementing that so that you say, okay, if we've created an environment that is free of abuse and harassment, then what are the next steps to take to really make it a place where players want to be and they feel valued as people? Um, so that research informed some of the decision-making that we made at Gotham, especially in prioritizing what areas to invest in first because we could not fix everything all at once. Um, and I think you've seen how creating an environment where we're putting players first as people and, and centering them as people in our decision-making has led to a revival of the team as a soccer team. We've become better at soccer and also as a destination for players. Players want to 
play in environments where they feel like they are growing as players and cared for as people. So that's the kind of standard that I think needs to come next to really, really take another step forward is saying, okay, we have hopefully addressed the misconduct issues, but here are all these other things that are a little bit more nuanced than misconduct that all contribute to player well-being and player experience. And we want to invest in improving those things so that we can have the best players in the world wanting to come play here because they know that this is going to be a good decision for them as athletes and as people. Real quick follow-up on that. You mentioned Safe Sport. I know Safe Sport has been, you know, the prominent organization that deals with this, but of course they were uh, also in some ways a part of the issues uh, that face some of these players. How do you work with the Federation and work with Safe Sport to rebuild the trust that was broken by that organization in the minds of players and fans? Yeah, I think that's something where I really need to defer to Mana and the legal team at U.S. Soccer. They're the ones that are really in the weeds. I will say, though, that one of the frustrations that comes up in my conversations with members is the um, jurisdiction that Safe Sport has. Like, there's a lot of murkiness around what is and isn't theirs to address. And that leaves our members in a tough spot so at, at the very least clearing up you know when do things get referred to safe sport and when are those things dealt with at the state association level or the league level or the club level would help some of our members better make decisions around what processes they need to have in place to ensure they have safe environments for their players I want to shift gears to fan accessibility, ticket prices, obviously a, a hot topic uh, amongst fans. I am a fan, obviously, go to a lot of games, and one of the so biggest frustrations... I'm a fan. Yeah, I, I see you at see you quite a few of them, and, and one of the frustrations that we all face is getting more people into the stands. We we have a lot of games that are uh, half sold out, or or even in the case of San Antonio, which was sold out, but you know, 9,000 people means that there were probably more people who were shut out of that game. How do you create a system where we're hitting some of these places that don't get a lot of games but also encouraging the growth of the fan base by, by getting more people out to bigger stadiums maybe? Do, do you think MLS should be having more games in their stadiums versus NFL stadiums or in this era where we're about to get a World Cup maybe two in a row? Is it is the move to try and fill these stadiums in an effort to try and prepare people for 2026 and beyond? Yeah, I think so. I will say from my perspective as a fan, more people in stadiums should be a direct policy goal. Um, also, as someone who is a data person, I can't tell you directly that we are correctly or incorrectly pricing our tickets until I get in there and I'm I'm told here is the plan and here's why we have been doing what we have been doing. But what I think should be the biggest driver of our decisions at the Federation is, are we making choices that are helping us develop a strong soccer culture? So you know, taking it back a little bit to the governance of the Federation, you have these different membership councils and you have the youth council and the adult council and the at-large council and the pro council and the athletes council and the fan council as well. And a lot of the issues that each of the councils faces in a vacuum, it, it kind of looks like they are council specific issues, 
but really the connecting line between all the councils and across all the councils is that everyone would benefit from having a stronger soccer culture. And the mission of the Federation is, is to promote and grow the game at all levels for people of all ages and all abilities. And the way that you get at that, uh, that very big, lofty, ambitious phrasing is through soccer culture. So if you have a culture in which you have a robust, thriving, amateur adult soccer scene in your state, then that means that hopefully there are more people inviting their coworkers to a Sunday league kick around. And if that happens and then they like soccer because that's how they got into it, then that means there's probably more people who are going to be excited about the idea of going out to watch a national team game or their local pro team. And as they get into the sport that way, then those are people who hopefully when they have kids decide, oh, I'm going to sign my kid up for AYSO for U.S. Youth Soccer. And then that gets even more people into the soccer universe. And hopefully one in a million of those kids is going to grow up to be the next Trinity Rodman or the next Christian Pulisic. So the the through line through all of it is, are we making decisions that create stronger soccer cultures? I think without having directly looked at the reasoning behind why we are pricing tickets the way that we're pricing them, I would like us to make choices that get more people in the stadium because I think that is the way to build stronger soccer cultures. Um, and same thing, what you said, it, it's not just about more people in the stadium. It's about where are we having these games? Are we reaching the right communities? I was a little disappointed for cities like Denver and Orlando and Cincinnati that didn't get World Cup bids. I know that's a little bit out of the Federation's hands, a lot of it out of the Federation's hands. Um, but like that is an opportunity. The World Cup is an opportunity to bring the highest level of the game to different geographic regions that we're not going to get again for another generation. So thinking very carefully about are the communities that we want to touch on geographically spread out enough that they're receiving our attention is also top of mind for me. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I want, I want the places rocking. I, I like when people are jumping up and down and everyone's in their seat. Um, so that's, I know that was a little rambling, but no, I, it, uh, it, it brings up a good point uh, and, or at least a, a, another follow-up question that kind of blends into uh, diversity, diversity, equity, inclusion, which I, I know we have a couple of questions on, but when we talk about some of these uh, venues, we've seen realistically, we've seen in the last couple of years, it being restricted to a few states. And I know there's people out there who are of the LGBTQ plus community who don't feel welcome in some of these places that are hosting games. How do you balance that with wanting to go to some of these states? And it's not necessarily doesn't matter which states there are, but there are states that, you know, don't make it welcome for the LGBTQ community to enjoy themselves. And so how do you balance that with wanting to spread this out? How do you include them in those decisions when you do make uh, about where the soccer game goes? Yeah, I think the way that I try to approach things like this is to listen directly from the populations that are impacted. You know, I, I don't know that we have a LGBTQ focus group from 
our fans. Maybe we do. You, you, you can tell me if we do. Um, and listening to them say, hey, you know, how how do you want us to approach it? Um, that's, again, you know, the way that I've approached the campaign is going around and asking the member organizations to tell me what their issues are and what they think the solution might be. It doesn't mean that if, you know, New Mexico adult soccer tells me that this is exactly how they want to do things that I'm going to go in there and say, oh, this is exactly what we need to do. But it does mean that we at least directly hear from the people that um, that have issues with the way that the Federation is, is approaching any decision. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the issue of LGBTQ inclusion goes even beyond where we're hosting national team games and the, the value of going around and listening to everyone means that things that come up, you know, in my conversation with the Northern California adult soccer association, I asked them, I said, Hey, listen, it, it sounds like your board, unlike a lot of other boards actually has a lot of, um, Hispanic members on it. That's, that's nice to see. Do you, do y'all have any issues connecting with Hispanic leagues? And they said, you know, actually we do pretty well compared to other states in bringing in Hispanic leagues. One place where we've had issues connecting and, and there's been skepticism is there are LGBTQ leagues in San Francisco all over the place with, you know, people who are playing soccer and they have been skeptical about the, the benefits of joining our organization. And so where a lot of other states are having that same issue with Hispanic leagues, we're having that issue with LGBTQ leagues. And I think that's probably very particular to somewhere like San Francisco. I think maybe there might be other places in the country where that's an issue, but that's not something that I would have thought immediately by myself. Like it required going around to listen to everyone, everyone's specific issues for that to come up. Uh, but now it's on my radar. And now I'm thinking not just, okay, well, some states have issues connecting with their Latino leagues, but there's at least one state that's having issues connecting with LGBTQ leagues. Is that an issue that other states, you know, may, may not have brought up, but that they would benefit from if we if we create a strategy around that for the one state that did bring it up? Um, so, you know, all of this to say, I think listening to the impact populations directly has to be part of, of forming an answer. Um, and then I think that will get balanced with, you know, we want to make sure that we are hosting games in geographically different regions um, so that everyone has a chance to see their national team play. Um, but, you know, I, I would I would like us to think, again, back to the the, the bigger, more idealistic point that the Federation is not just a bystander um, and that we have, we meaning soccer in this country, a lot of cultural power, more so than maybe people might think because they still see soccer as not yet having made it in the U.S. Um, in other countries, it's very clear that soccer has very, very strong social, political, cultural power. Um, but one one of my favorite factoids of being in the soccer space is that the global Google searches for the term equal pay peaked 
the day that the U.S. Women's National Team won the Women's World Cup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, it spikes up a little bit every time we reach equal pay day. It spikes up every time that Congress passes some sort of Equal Pay Act. But the largest traffic of people Googling equal pay was when the U.S. Women's National Team won the World Cup. So that's that's already proof that soccer in the United States has very important social and cultural influence. Um, so when we're thinking about, you know, can we, one, work with the LGBTQ community to make sure that they feel like they're being um taken into account and consideration when we're making decisions it also goes the other way into can we work with local leaders and elected leaders to make sure that we are using soccer as something that makes for more accessibility and more inclusiveness as opposed to less you know you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the national training center there's been a big push recently to bring awareness to those extended national teams you mentioned, cerebral palsy, power soccer, yep. you know, deaf national team, and even you know, beach and futsal. They're getting prominent space in the National Training Center, which I think is terrific. What ideas do you have to continue to build upon the work that they've already been doing to build more awareness, bring more resource, and and really most importantly for us, bring more fans to watch those games? Yeah, I think highlighting the fact that these teams are really good is is one of the ways to to bring more awareness to them. I am generally not an American imperialist unless it unless we're dealing with our national teams like I want us to win everything in every discipline and based on again the US as a country and what we have which is a massive population really good infrastructure relative to the rest of the world i know it could be better um and a place in our site we, we definitely like need to go further in how our society is accessible or not to people with disabilities but it's also true that we are further along than a lot of other countries in the world in that regard and so all of those things together mean that our disability national teams are really freaking good and and to just highlight what that means for us and make sure that we are being equally proud of these teams doing things like winning their respective world cups i think that by itself is just another opportunity for people to be proud to be an american and and by doing that that will bring in more attention, hopefully more you know, sponsorship dollars and more fans into the game. It's just all we have to do is highlight the work that they're already doing. Um, our deaf women's national team just won their you know, third consecutive World Cup in Malaysia um, at the end of last year. Our women's cerebral palsy national team is also the reigning World Cup champions. Um, I think after, or, you know, on, on the... Um, men's side our futsal national team actually has achieved like one of the highest finishes in a fifa competition by coming in second in one of the world cups back in back in the 90s um so just seeing these as, as additional opportunities to be proud of our country in a way that brings people together is in my view kind of the path forward we don't have to do 
much differently yet. Just highlighting these teams more on their success um, should be a, a good first step. Yeah, absolutely. The, these national teams, uh, the ones that I mentioned, the ones that you've talked about, have, uh, the, the awareness they have is not enough. They've been doing some great things over the last yeah. decade plus, uh, so I was glad to see them in the forefront. Yeah. Nate, I want to switch oh, into... Yeah. Go oh, ahead. We, we can switch. Yeah. Well, so the, the, my, my earlier point too about infrastructure is like we're, we're ready to host, and honestly, we're ready to host the men's senior FIFA World Cup tomorrow. It wouldn't it wouldn't be as good as it's going to be in 26, but we have enough cities and airports and hotels and everything to host a World Cup just fine. I think the lift required to host some of the disability World Cups or even, you know, the the Beach World Cup or the Futsal World Cups is much lower relative to hosting a senior men's World Cup. And so I would like to see us host more tournament i think that's another way to to bring awareness and kind of give the respect to those disciplines that we are giving to our senior men's and women's teams by going out and bidding on the senior men's world cup and senior women's world cup and i think that will also help grow those disciplines and grow the interest in those disciplines uh, also by bringing those tournaments here that makes it more accessible for fans maybe casual fans to go to a you know, power soccer world cup and get into the sport that way. Um, and the last thing that, that I've talked about with a lot of the disability soccer organizations that I think the extended national team players can bring a perspective that is pretty unique. I think among disability sports, the prevalence of multi-sport athletes is higher. And I think some of the issues that we face in soccer Sometimes we get a little bit too insular and we get tunnel vision about how to approach them from within the soccer world where we can and should be learning from other sports about how they approach things. So some of our disability athletes have experience in other sports and have dealt with other national governing bodies that are also Olympic or Paralympic sports. And so if they can bring some of that perspective into U.S. soccer to give kind of, you know, another view into how other federations deal with things, I think that will make us stronger. And so as we grow our, this is, I think, specific to disability um, soccer disciplines, as we grow in that regard, then hopefully we are capturing perspectives that can add to the perspectives that are already in the rooms. We will be back with more from Nathan Goldberg after this. Hey everyone, are you looking for the latest gear for your U.S. national teams, Major League Soccer, the NWSL, or any other team in the world of soccer? The USA SoccerCast has affiliate partnerships that are ready to help you out. Head to linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast where we have links to Homage, Fanatics, the MLS Store, and Breaking Feet. You can get the jersey, shirt, hat, or accessory you're looking for to support your team while also saving some money and helping this show in the process. Again, linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast. Click on the links and get your gear. And we thank you as always for your support of the show.
We're back and we resume our interview with U.S. Soccer Vice Presidential Candidate Nathan Goldberg. I, I want to switch to youth development. I, we could talk about World Cups all day, yeah. uh, but I do want to get to youth development. And, and my first question is, obviously, we have a pay-to-play model that largely exists in the United States. I know there's been a push in recent years to start doing away with that in various various mod, in various ways. How do you plan to help transition yeah. U.S. soccer away from a p- play-to-play model so that our talent pool is more, more inclusive? And most especially, we'll reach into some of these communities that have, you know, Black people, brown people, and even Native people. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the million-dollar question. Of course. Um, and, and I think what I can say now is that we have taken the first step or the first two steps towards figuring out what a unified youth soccer landscape looks like. And I think we had you know, the the heads of the largest amateur soccer organizations write a letter together saying, hey, we we're gonna sit in a room and try to figure out how do we make the amateur and the youth landscapes more unified because if we do that, it might not it might not eliminate pay to play right away, but the fact that things are so fractured raises the barriers to entry and, and it raises the incentive to compete rather than to make access as broad as possible um so those conversations give me hope that we will figure out what the next phase of the youth soccer landscape looks like and hopefully that is a step closer to a world that matches what european models are which is that professional clubs essentially end up subsidizing the the soccer landscape so that kids can play for free and then that way you are investing in player development that that's the way to to view it um so beyond that i know that there are members who are chipping away at the problem kind of little by little here and there and one of the cool things about again going around and listening to people is that i'm able to connect the dots across the country of things that you know, maybe small in the sense of how many kids is this initiative reaching, but that are still important. And one specific instance of that is in going and visiting Wyoming and talking to the Wyoming Soccer Association folks. They said, oh yeah, we we did receive a grant from the Federation at some point to expand access to soccer in Native American communities. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool. And then a couple of months later, I went to Montana and I talked to the Montana Youth Soccer Association people and they said, oh yeah, we're preparing a grant application for U.S. soccer to expand access to soccer in Native American reservations. And I said, oh, okay, well, have you talked to the people in Wyoming who already got a grant to do this? They said, no, we haven't. I said, okay, well, maybe you two should talk to each other and I'll, I'll introduce you. And that way you can learn from what they've done there and what's worked, what hasn't. How did they prepare theirs? And what was the vision? Does it line up with what you're doing? And making those connections across our members is something that makes me really excited because if the, if the two of them get together and figure something that, that works and is scalable, then we can take it to places like Alaska and New Mexico and Western New York, which are also states that mention the fact that 
they would like to expand access to soccer and Native American reservations. So the, there's a 30,000 foot view of how to approach these problems. And there is the grassroots nitty gritty way of approaching these problems. And really you need both to fix it. And if you attack it from both ends, you're going to meet somewhere in the middle with a solution. And I'm excited about kind of rolling up my sleeves and getting into the nitty gritty where I will be helpful and where, again, Cindy and, and JT think the vice president can be directly useful to advance their strategic objectives um, and make those connections between the grassroots and the 30,000 foot view. You know, this is more of a nuanced question, but within the youth development, some of the barriers, first of all, you have players who are trying to be included into some of these programs that English is not their first language. They may be American, but English is not their first language, especially in some of these urban areas and even in the native communities that we were just talking about. On the other side, you have kids who want to go play in Europe at an earlier age. Of course, outside of England, Scotland, Ireland, there's very few places that have English as a native language. What do you do to help break down those barriers? And, and it's hard to say, yes, let's bring in interpreters for every language, because I know certain communities, you may have a, a lack of those opportunities. So how do you break down those barriers for those players who, A, on one side, may not be speaking, you know, be able to speak English as well, or at least don't speak it at home. And then on the flip side, those who may want to learn another language so that they have more opportunities abroad. Yeah, I think um, I'll start with an anecdote, <laughs> which is I when I walked into my first day of work at U.S. Soccer and met my coworkers and learned that no one on the senior leadership of the staff spoke Spanish. I was like, oh, did I, is this the Canadian Soccer Federation? <laughs> um, so I, I was disappointed by that. I, I think in my ideal world, the Federation considers itself a truly bilingual organization. It doesn't mean that every single person needs to speak English and Spanish. And I know that Spanish is just one of the languages that is spoken in the U.S. besides um English, but by proportion of the population, English and Spanish covers a very, very, very large proportion of the population. So if we get that right, we will be making a massive quantum leap forward. Um, and, and that's something that's just innate to who I am as a person. I was born and raised in Mexico. I, I immigrated to the United States. And, you know, I, I've, I've been an, a proud American citizen now for um, six plus years. But having someone who knows what it's like and someone who understands things from the perspective of some of the immigrant communities that we are struggling to reach is invaluable. Like you really cannot measure how important that is in a strategic plan. So one of the reasons why I wanted to do this is to say, hey, I, I think that perspective would make the Federation's deliberations in the boardroom better informed. And that's, I mean, I, I take that very, very seriously. Um, at the same time, I don't think you can expect that every state association, I mean, some of these state associations have one person on staff 
and there's 54, 55 state associations, depending if you're looking at the youth or the adults. And it's unreasonable to expect that every single one would have someone who is multilingual leading that because there are other skills that are very valuable to, to leading an organization like that. Maybe you have a legal background, maybe you have a business background, but you don't speak another language. So that's where I, again, I would like to see the Federation conceive of itself as a multilingual organization at its core, not, not as a added feature, but as part of its mission. And then you can provide as a centralized resource, you know, economies of scale, can we provide some states with materials in English and Spanish? Can we like use a data-driven approach to figure out which are the other languages after English and Spanish that would be kind of like biggest impact in terms of how many more people we'd be able to reach and bring into our membership and then say, okay, well, if producing materials in Vietnamese is going to help make a real impact in some of these communities, then like, let's invest in that and do it at the federation level where we can spread those resources across different states and across different members rather than expect each individual state or each individual member to find their own contractor for translation. Um, so I, I think the federation there's a lot of challenges that come with being such a large decentralized country when it when it comes to soccer governance but there's a lot of benefits of having a centralized hub for things like translation services um so that's where the federation can be part of the solution in my view i i want to segue this this next question kind of brings in the the equity the inclusion the accessibility opportunity and also youth development we're talking about coaching and referees. Obviously, that's something where a lot of people hope for more more coaches, more referees to become trained. Uh, how do you make higher caliber coaching and in, in referee uh, referees available for those who can't afford the high prices of those workshops and, and the training that's required? Yeah. So I think sometimes we think about players too much as the be-all end-all and the truth is that in order to continue to grow the game this is like a high school chemistry equation you know you have um, a limiting reactant where if you don't have enough referees then there's actually a cap there's a limit on how much you can grow player registrations because if you don't have referees to ref games then then you cannot schedule more games if you don't have enough fields to play games, then you cannot schedule more games if you don't have enough coaches, if you don't have enough administrators. So at a very high level, I think viewing the growth of our player registrations as really a holistic problem of player registrations, referee registration, coaching registration, and ad administrators um, ties back to what the purpose of the federation is like it's it's literal mission in the bylaws the second portion of that is to and i'm, I'm quoting this because i'm looking at it right now to provide for the continuing development of soccer players coaches referees and administrators i think we need to view those things on par with uh, like with each other um so concretely to how do we get more people um as refs and coaches is one if we consider it equally as important then that means that the dollars that we are allocating to growing 
those numbers become just as important as the numbers that we are committing to growing the player registrations. I think that frees up more dollars or reallocates more dollars towards coaches, referees. Um, I'm also again trying to like put my my money where my mouth is. If I want to make decisions or help inform decisions about our referee pipeline or our coaching pipeline, I want to know what I'm talking about. So I'm actually going through my referee and coaching certification. I got my um, grassroots referee license and my D-level coaching license right before I started working in Gotham. And I took a lot of notes going through my coaching course. And I think there are multiple factors that contributed to the fact that only about half of the people that started my course finished it. And, you know, coming from a place of love and understanding for what the Federation is doing. And I know the people who are working really hard on our digital learning center and the coaching education um, pathway coming back with feedback and saying, hey, these were things that were pain points for me. And I'm one of the people who is, you know, in the 99.99 percentile of putting up with stuff that the Federation does. Um, so there are pain points for me, then you can imagine how much of a pain point they were for other people. And that even includes things like, now that I'm looking at my C license course, I saw the price tag, you know, and it's in the four figures now. And I am someone that is in a better financial position than than a lot of other people. And even I got sticker shock. I was like, oh, am I, am I gonna pay $1,000 to get my C license? I don't know. Um, so going through it, understanding what are the pain points makes me better prepared to contribute to the conversations about how we can keep people in the pipeline more successfully. Because I think, you know, if you're thinking about sales 101, it's easier to keep an existing customer than it is to create a new customer. So from a priorities of the Federation, I would like us to see a priority of making sure that the people who are already signed up for our courses finish the courses before we then start to tackle what is probably a thornier, gnarlier um, issue of how do we get more people to sign up in the first place. So taking a step-by-step, figuring out are the people that are already in the pipeline, what is their experience? Can we improve their user experience? Can we minimize friction so that they stay in the pipeline? And then once we feel like we've done a good job there, can we broaden the funnel to get more people in? Um, I think the last thing I'll say on that point is that we invest a lot of money in talent development on the field and not nearly a commensurate amount of money into talent development off the field. And I think there are a lot of places and a lot of situations in which finding the next great club administrator, league administrator that is going to you know, stand up a club in a community that maybe doesn't have a club yet. And that club is going to touch the lives of a thousand kids. Like that might be a better investment than trying to throw more money at like identifying the 12th best left back in the U16 boys pool. Um, so, so thinking about things again, in a very holistic way, where if we're saying, Putting money into talent development is important for player development, but it's also important for 
finding the next generation of coaches and referees and administrators that are going to make every facet of the game grow. And that if we do that, there will be a virtuous cycle of if we have more administrators that are really good, then there are going to be more clubs that are well run. And that means more kids are going to have access to play soccer. Um, it's all it's all interconnected. We've touched on a lot so far. There's one more uh, category that I want oh, to go yep. through, and that's really, you know, U.S. soccer's relationship with the various professional leagues. And I want to start with the probably most important question on Twitter, um, but it is about promotion relegation. What are your thoughts on pushing towards a promotion relegation format between all the leagues that we have on both the men and women's side, yeah. MLS, all the USL leagues, uh, NISA, and on the women's side, obviously the NWSL, the USL Super League that's coming about, the W League. Are you in favor of the current system on both the men, men and women's side or do you feel it's going to be a push towards consolidating that under a pyramid that allows for promotion relegation? Yeah. So I'll start with this. I love promotion relegation. I think the like promotions are the single most awesome stories in all of global sports. Um, and I say this as, as someone who before I worked at Gotham, I was advising a group of Mexican investors who wanted to buy a lower division European team. And, and I helped uh, find and negotiate and broker a transaction to buy a fifth division Spanish team. And as part of my fee, you know, for, for doing that work for them, I got a small percentage of the team's equity. So like I am a small minority owner of a fifth division Spanish team. And I wake up Sundays at 4.30 a.m. to not even watch the games because there's no stream, but just refresh the page to see if we've scored a goal. Um, and and the team we lost in the promotion semifinals <laughs> last year. And it was the most intense and heartbreaking moment of I, a lot of these investors' lives. And I, I was really, um, you know, really torn up by it. So I, I love I love promotion relegation. Um, also, I just lived through one of the biggest fairy tales of my life and in the sports world by taking a team that finished in last place in the NWSL and making them champions the next year. And that's just not something that would have been possible if the team had gotten relegated into, into a different division. So I think there is mad like the magic of soccer exists on both sides and what i favor as an approach is encourage like creating the right conditions for leagues to make their own decisions about what is the best thing for them and so i'm really excited about the fact that usl has seriously seriously studied and considered the option to institute promotion relegation within their system i think that would be great as a fan I, i'm not going to tell them like what the right business decision is that's up to them and their owners i think as a fan that would be really cool it would be something that does not exist in the american soccer landscape so it would be an experiment to see how people react to it um and if it really goes well then they have a case that that is the quote-unquote right way to do it um but i think the american sports landscape is big enough to hold a lot of different approaches and that the way to, you know, settle the debate um, is not necessarily by U.S. soccer coming in and saying, hey, this is how we're going to do it. It's by creating the conditions for 
people who believe in ProRel to make that happen. And if that happens, you best believe that I will be at the games and I will be going to the promotion playoffs and the relegation playoffs. And um, as a fan, I, I mean, I, I do, I do really, really love that. Um, as a side note, I think that's what college football should do. I think college football should just break off from NCAA, stop the charade and like dragging around all the other poor sports that are not the money makers and just go national pyramid and you get Alabama against Michigan caliber games every weekend. And and then when they get relegated, uh, people will still go. I think the, the arguments of, oh, well, you know, the American soccer landscape doesn't have those like geographic ties to teams where fandom is passed down generation by generation i just immediately think of college football like the fact there is a hundred thousand seater stadium in tuscaloosa alabama that gets full of people every time the college football team plays to me means like there is room for pro rel in american sports in soccer and beyond soccer um and i think that whoever does it first will be welcomed by fans and their wallets the last question I have focuses on one particular league. That's Major League Soccer. Obviously, recently they attempted, uh, I should say, it didn't. It wasn't quite successful. It's still being worked out. They have yeah. attempted to uh, remove their first teams from the U.S. Open Cup. Now, obviously, this is something that is the longest longest cup in American sports. It's something that's beloved by a lot of people. What are your thoughts on? How do you get and and a lot of it's do to deal with schedule congestion, but some people would say that is a problem of MLS's own doing in some in some cases. But how do you reconcile that and get MLS to the table to uh, agree to keep this competition whole uh, by allowing them to be able to compete and send their first teams? Yeah, I, I mean, again, it, it's not it's not my job to tell MLS how to make their schedule. Um, I would have liked to think that the the place to cut games is to now that you have 29 teams is to um just go one big table and like forget about conferences and play you play 28 games you know you play half the teams at home half teams away um everyone charters anyway so i know that there is a lot of travel <laughs> um in this country but that's how the nwsl schedule is everyone plays everyone home and away and and i really liked it um so setting that aside I think that was a culmination of the way that the Federation and the pros have treated their two-way relationship as something that is not membership, you know? So, so when we talk about members in U.S. soccer, usually the things that comes to mind is, oh, you got the state associations, you got the disability soccer organizations, you got the football organizations, you got the leagues and this and that. Um, but the pro leagues are kind of excluded from that mental picture but but the reality is that they're also members and and being a member of the federation comes with a lot of benefits but it also comes with duties and obligations and what i would like to see and what i would like to directly work at if i'm in there in the spirit of kind of building bridges between the federation and the membership and across the different membership councils is can we get to a point where the pro leagues truly see themselves as members of the federation that have this kind of broader responsibility to the larger soccer ecosystem? Um, again, it, it's not it's not 
a problem of MLS that they see things that way. I think it's been a long time of a two-way street in which both the Federation and the leagues see membership as something that applies to the rest of the members, but not to the pro leagues. So kind of shifting that mindset and saying, okay, like we, we all want to drive in roughly the same direction. Um, and in order to do that, to the best of our abilities, it's better for us to do it together. Um, that's a little bit kind of idealistic and kumbaya, but I, I think that's the mindset that we should have is can we take small steps to rebuild the relationship in a way where the pro leagues see themselves as members, just like the rest of the members see themselves as members, and that that kind of binds us together as a federation. I think everyone loves the cup set, and I know sometimes the the everyone bigger leagues don't, but it, it's a part of the it's a part of the culture, it's a part of the soccer landscape that we have, and we yeah. want that to see that continue. And um, it goes back to you know you use the word culture, like building a strong soccer culture should be a driving factor in how U.S. soccer is approaching decisions. And I think cup sets are part of soccer culture. Absolutely. Uh, before we let you go, mm -hmm. last minute or so, anything yeah. else you'd like to say, your final pitch to fans that are following the selection and why they should, should support your candidacy? Yeah, well, the first thing is that they actually can't support my candidacy because <laughs> the, <laughs> the universe of voters is very small. But, but within that, I have also been trying to take this campaign as an opportunity to bring more people into the world of U.S. soccer. So even if people can't vote, I want this to be a way for people to be more informed and, and get a better sense of what goes into U.S. soccer elections, who are the people making decisions, why are they making these decisions. And I think if the Federation is more transparent and more accessible to the everyday casual fan, then that in and of itself is is a win for everyone. Um, so, you know, some of this is, is a dynamic between members and non-members because only members can vote. Um, I, even though I've done a lot of work in our different membership councils, I'm technically not a capital M member and I don't have the ability to vote for myself either. So it's not just, it's not just that the people who are listening can't vote for me. I can't vote for myself either. Um, but when we're thinking about growing the membership, it shouldn't just be about, can we get more player registrations? It should be about like, can we bring in a broader, larger group of people who want to contribute to the growth of the sport as players, as coaches, as referees, as administrators, and as hopefully a member of the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. Um, so I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You know, I have a campaign website and so people can learn a little bit about, about me as a person. Um, I know we, we talked more about my my views on the soccer landscape than, than who I am as a person or a candidate, which is great. I, I think discussion about issues um, and being honest and transparent, not everyone will agree with everything that I said, but I am an open book and, and I'm here to listen to people to form more informed decisions um, as hopefully a member of the national board. And we'll link his, uh, say your website again, but we'll link it in the show notes as well. Yes. Uh, NathanforVP.com. That's for F-O-R, not the number four, NathanforVP.com. Nathan, 
thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks so much for being on the USA Soccer Cast. I really appreciate it. And best of luck. I know it's it's hard to run for office. Not everyone does it. It's it's not always the easiest thing to do. So appreciate your candor and and best of luck for the election. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And honestly, it's been really fun. I mean, going around and listening to people tell me more about their corner of the soccer landscape has been an incredible, rewarding adventure. Um, and I would do it all over again, even if I lose. So that's Nathan right. Goldberg. Thank you very much. Take care. Once again, I'd like to thank Nathan Goldberg for coming on the show and answering these questions directly. We really appreciate him addressing fans via the show. And as I've mentioned before, I have plans to speak with Dr. Pete Zofi, the other remaining candidate, and Mike Kalina, who was a candidate before he officially dropped out of the race last week. My hope is that fans far and wide can hear about what these candidates have to say so that they can understand what they bring to the table and how their election could affect Federation governance. And it's important for fans to be a part of this. Hopefully, this informed you all. So please share this episode and the other interviews that we are able to conduct over the next week. But that will do it for episode 124 of the USA Soccer Cast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to follow us on Twitter. We're at USA Soccer Cast. Don't forget, we also have affiliate programs with Homage, Fanatics, MLS Store, and Breaking Tea. Head to linktree.com slash USA Soccer Cast to learn more. Click the links to those sites and support the show while getting the latest gear. And, of course, we always encourage topic suggestions as we move forward. You can email them to usasoccercast at gmail.com or tag us on Twitter. We'll talk to you again soon, y'all. Peace.